The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 16, A Right Pair. Professor Lyle's half-pay and hammock arrangement, as he disparagingly called what he had managed to set up for Isabel's continued keep at the university, was working out rather well. Looking after the lab animals was not onerous. She had even found herself becoming quite attached to the routine of their care and observation. Applying her training from paleo research, she kept meticulous notes on each animal's condition, noting when and for how long she handled them all. She kept these in separate files, of course. This allowed her to name each one, create backstories, and anthropomorphize a bit, fancying that some of the wee timorous and not-so-timorous beasties looked forward to her coming. Some of the mice and rats seemed genuinely fond of her. The lizards were almost comically deferential. Did they recognize kin or a kindred spirit, Isabel wondered? And the many faceted eyes of the biology unit's undisputed queen, an elderly scarlet tarantula aptly named Rosamond, showed something akin to bemusement whenever Isabel came to pay her cursory court. Spin me the story I'm to share, my queen, for this week I've drawn the king. Isabel whispered in the direction of the regal creature's cage as she was discussing the coming season's palette with a chameleon she'd named Ponzi on account of his ridiculous ruff. Isabel felt a chill run up her spine. She turned. Rosamond wasn't there. Isabel panicked. She never left cages open. Rosamond was a fairly placid old dame for her species, so Isabel wasn't worried about being ambushed herself. She was more concerned that, in the orderly lab, Rosamond would find little to eat, unless she had evolved a talent for lockpicking. Worse, Isabel imagined Rosamond beaten to death by an overzealous cleaner who happened upon her unawares. Isabel took a small transport cage and added some food that she hoped the old bell dame would find enticing. She systematically completed her rounds for the rest of her charges, moving the little cage with her in case she found Rosamond while she was seeing to the others. There was a sense among the mammals especially that all was not quite right, and Isabel finished earlier than usual, thanks in no small part to their trembling compliance. By the time she had completed her second fruitless circuit of the lab, Isabel was beginning to despair. Had Rosamond met her end already? She looked out the window. A leggy, untended rosebush had grown up against the lab window. It was in full, riotous late bloom. One branch was topped by a perfect double rose. Rosamond was swaying on the branch crazily, several legs flailing in the air like a rodeo rider. She didn't seem to be in any distress. If anything, Isabel thought, 
she seemed to be enjoying herself immensely. Some fool had left the window open a canny spider's width. Isabel frowned disapprovingly, then composed her features again. One did not show displeasure in the presence of royalty. Isabel coughed politely, <clears throat> sending the shadow of a curtsy into the queen's line of vision. She had been raised a lady, after all. The spider abruptly stopped swaying and composed herself genteelly, bowing. Her scarlet markings seemed to glow. If I didn't know better, Isabel thought to herself, I'd say Her Majesty was blushing. She positioned the cage and the spider processed serenely inside, as if pleased her carriage had finally arrived. Isabel carried her gently back to her home. A thin voice whispered and flowed like silk, saying, The god of stories is a spider. Where do you think he got his stories from, child? And Nancy has aunties, you know. Our webs run round the world. And for you, a single story in a double rose. She hadn't pulled a double rose. A rose but only twa, the spider began. Then up started young Tam Lin, says Lady Valpole Neymar. Isabel finished. The magical moment was shattered by the passing blaring of a song from a radio or playlist. Some discordant, drawling, true enoughism about roses having thorns. My point exactly, Rosamond agreed, turning from Isabel and daintily attacking her meal. So much for figuring out what she would tell next week, Isabel thought. But she knew that though Janet got her lad back from the Queen of Elfland in the ballad, tithes to hell were always paid, even if they took generations or eternities. When her audience signed on, Isabel described a beautiful bower in a forest clearing, with seats surrounded by wildflowers of every kind, including wild roses. In the near distance, there was the sound of a small waterfall or fountain trickling into a woodland spring, while farther away horses in procession could be heard, caparisoned with silver bells. Isabel began, Adeline welcomes her guests. As with many of our tales, you might know this story or one like it, but you may not know what comes before or after it. This, then, I will try to tell you. Once there was a laird's daughter, or some say the daughter of a king, though back far enough in the wild lands and king is a relative term. She was the only child of a noble house, beautiful, fearless, and headstrong. Her name was Janet. As far as she was concerned, her birthright included Carterhaw Woods, a rich forest fed by the Ettrick and Yarrow rivers near Selkirk. Though peaceful now, there was a time when this land was as disputed by mortals in the Fay as much as any border between Scotland and England, and the fair folk, being immortal, held sway over the place. Everyone knew it. Everyone except Janet. Now her father had planned a match for her to a noble and powerful laird, but Janet would have none of it. She'd had many suitors on account of her beauty, but she had rejected them all. There was no point marrying when she was her father's heir, no point, 
just to die in childbirth in order to secure someone else's name or to become a widow. One evening at dusk, Janet dressed herself in her favorite green gown and cloak and ran into her beloved forest. She found a clearing with a well and a fair white steed grazing nearby, but no rider. Janet saw a beautiful, fragrant, wild rosebush. One delicate branch displayed a perfectly twined double rose. She plucked it, enjoying the heady scent. Suddenly, a figure stood before her. He was fiercely arrayed as the forest's guardian, but his eyes and voice were hollow, as if he had been pressed into service time out of mind, as much a prisoner of the place himself as its defender. He appeared to her first as a wee man, a wizened, wizardly, misshapen changeling. When that failed to unnerve her, he took on his true form, a tall, handsome young man with the bearing of a laird himself. When she looked him up and down but did not swoon, he was at a loss. "'Why have you plucked that rose?' he asked. "'Do you not ken the price?' "'I will pay no price for that which is already mine,' Janet retorted. She'd heard the tales all her life. Here was Tam Lynn and the penalty for trespassing into the Queen of Elfland's woods for a mortal woman was the loss of wealth, honour, or life at his hands.' I am Janet of Carter Hall, and it is you who should pay me tribute for trespassing here, you and your mistress. She defiantly plucked a rose petal, and Tamlin wept a single tear. If flowers break your heart so easily, Janet said, your queen should know you're not fit for the dishonest work you do. I do not serve by choice, he replied. You are not elf kind, she asked. I am as mortal and noble as you are, Tamlin answered. My grandfather was the Earl of Roxburgh, and I was sent to live with him and learn the ways of a gentleman. One day when we were out hunting, I was thrown from my horse, and before I fell to the earth, the Queen of Elfland caught me up and brought me to her court. Janet recalled that story, too. Her grandmother had told her to frighten her not to stray too far. The same tale had worked since her great-great-grandmother's day like a charm, apparently, but on the willful, wandering Janet, it had no effect. Time passes very differently in fairy, Tamlin went on, and I have already passed lifetimes in the Queen's service. But every seven mortal years, the fair folk pay their tithe to hell, as is the due of all races unworthy of heaven. They are not a prolific species. Few children are born to them, which is why it sometimes amuses them to steal the bairns of mortal women or abduct children or youths. Fair though they may be when grown, fairy offspring are often ugly or sickly, so they change them for human babes. There are few in the court now to stand as payment, and the queen tires of me, so I fear I may be the next price paid to hell." Janet saw real fear in Tamlin's eyes and knew that he was as much a prisoner in the other world as she felt in her own. Janet continued to steal away from her father's house at every opportunity and come to the forbidden woods to see Tamlin. Over time, they fell in love. One day, she reminded him of the price of trespassing into the woods. She seemed upset. 
Finally, she asked him outright, Before I came to you, do you recall how many women you dishonored, and do you ken how many children you have fathered? Or is that kind of forgetfulness your queen's greatest gift? Tam stared at her speechless for a moment, then slowly began, I was cursed before to seduce women or scare them into submission so that our union might produce a child that the elf queen would consider worthy of fostering. This is what she generously calls eternal abduction and the lifelong heartbreak that follows for the shamed mortal mothers. Mercifully, none of my offspring lived to be born for the queen to claim. She sees this as an unforgivable failing in one apparently so fine, which is why she's thinking of paying me over to hell next to All Hallows' Eve. Although Tam felt the loss himself, it was probably a mercy, he had often reflected, to be faced with his own children at court under the queen's capricious care as she molded them into her image while unable to show them any affection or guidance would have driven him to despair. Hell, in those circumstances, would have been a far kinder fate. Why, he asked, as Janet went to pluck another double rose. He stayed her hand, realizing the reason for her question and her tone. Would you really use the cause of our meeting to rid yourself of our child? I wasn't thinking of using the rose to rid myself of our bairn, she replied. The first rose called you to me. I was hoping a second might help me rid us of your queen. I have nowhere to go. I have left my father's house. The best he could come up with was to marry me off to the oldest and most lecherous of his knights. Fighting a fiend to the death, frankly, has more appeal, she smiled weakly, looking at the rose again, the blooms entwined. We are a right pair, you and I. Tamlin embraced Janet and held her at arm's length, explaining what she would need to do. You must wait at Miles Cross near midnight on All Hallows. As the church bells begin to chime, the Queen's procession will ride by. All the horses will be decked in silver bells, but their sound will be masked to mortal ears by the sound of the church bells. How will I recognize you in the midst of an unfamiliar company? Janet asked. Let the black and brown horses and riders go by, Tam explained. I will be on the white horse just before the queen, still in the place of her favorite, so that her tribute to hell will seem the more valuable. I will wear a glove only on my right hand, and my hair will be combed long in their fashion. I will neither know you nor be able to give any sign, but when I pass you, pull me down and hold me, no matter what forms I take. When the queen has worked out her rage, what's left of me will be yours. Janet did as Tamlin instructed, and when she pulled him off his horse and held him fast, he writhed in her arms and fought her restraint. Before Janet could claim victory over the elf queen, her beloved assumed the form of snakes, a bear, a lion, a rod of iron, even though that metal was the eternal scourge of the fair ones, a burning coal, and finally a naked, broken man. Though badly scarred herself, Janet was ultimately victorious. Isabel paused to allow her audience to imagine the horror of Tamlin's transformations. After a while, she continued, 
the queen with characteristic flair touched first tam and then janet with her sceptre and wished the husk joy of the harridan saying you have claimed from me he who is the fairest of my company had i known this outcome i would have given him a heart of stone and plucked out his fine gray eyes and put in knots of wood she rode away her harness jingling with otherworldly music janet did not die in childbirth but she didn't live happily ever after, either. She was delivered of a fine son. Some say he was the ancestor of Thomas the Rhymer, or the true sire of the one who became the King of Ireland's son. Either way, the male line descended from Janet of Carter Hall was always fay, Poets, prophets, dreamers and wanderers, restless seekers never satisfied, ever searching for the undying lands. The queen's legacy, hearts of stone and eyes of wood, these men are not cruel, but they are driven by longing and blind to grace. They cannot love like mortal men and do not see what is right in front of them, their gaze ever fixed on the far horizon. Janet did not become a widow either. Like Tam Lin, she had been touched by the ever-living and holds him through his constantly changing nightmares still. Isabel fell silent. The Decameron chose a card. Queen of Diamonds. Lucas was shocked. He had imagined that card as he had listened to Isabel's story. So had she. A single thought, a right pair. So that was a cautionary tale, was it? Away with the fairies meets paradise by the dashboard light? Jack teased. Meatloaf, Lucas enthused, recognizing the retro song reference. Rubbish, Mara thought, upset that Jack's stupid program hadn't chosen her. Still, there was something about that one, the way he used humor to gloss over discomfort or mask fear. The great peacemaker the mighty coward. She invited Jack to a private chat. He accepted reluctantly. Did the story strike a nerve, Jack? Mara asked. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.